Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. My name is Martin Thompson and welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. Today I'm very happy to be joined by some great experts who share their opinions on Microsoft. This is our third podcast on Microsoft and Microsoft licensing. We've already covered virtualization, we've dug into data center, and in this podcast we dig into some of the research that we've done around the campaign for clear licensing around Microsoft and their current activity. Um, Some of the topics include um, recent news about Safe Harbor, Office 365, blockers to adoption around Office 365 and what people are doing there. Uh, We look at Microsoft bundling and how you can potentially break those up. We look at navigating some of the complexity around the licensing Uh, We look around um, mobility and the way Microsoft is monetizing mobility. And we also look at um, what Microsoft is doing in terms of ISO. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Tim Hegedis from uh, Miro Consulting, from Mike Austin from Method 180, Sumin Shen from Bellark, Peter Baruch from 1E, Kevin Suckow from Software One, and Mandy Sue Blue from Flexera Software. Uh, So I hope you enjoy it. Let's dig into it. So welcome to the ITAM Review podcast. Um, On a uh, recent seminar into Microsoft licensing, um, one of the uh, key pieces of feedback was uh, actually not around Microsoft licensing, even though it was a Microsoft licensing seminar. um, One of the key blockers to people progressing with Microsoft was actually um, very classic cloud uh, objections around moving to the cloud, such as where does my data lie and uh, what's going to happen to my data if I finish the contract and so on and so forth. So um, Microsoft has obviously either not addressed those objections or it's in the process of addressing those objections. And, and this, this was a couple of weeks ago. And then this week we hear that there's a there's a, a EU ruling around the safe harbor uh, of data. Um, anyone on the call have like to start in terms of what that the implications of that and perhaps what the uh, the details of what that means. Yes, hi Martin. This is Simon with uh, Bellark. Uh, happy to uh, chat. We we might just want to tell people a little bit about the background. I mean, it's one of the one of the times when uh, you know an Austrian Facebook user actually has implications mostly for uh, you know large commercial customers. But uh, you know this Austrian Facebook user. Uh, Sued uh, the uh, European, uh, brought suit to the European Court, and they decided that uh, the safe harbor, which by safe harbor they meant uh, that uh, companies could transfer data between the EU and the US uh, primarily, uh, uh, counting on the US privacy uh, laws as, as they may or may not exist. And the EU court uh, uh, turned that down, uh, saying that that was not sufficient. and, and one of the examples they gave was Edward Snowden's uh, re- uh, revelations uh, from a year ago. And uh, of course, it's lots of people in the, in the US intelligence agencies saying, oh, that's not true, that's not true. But as it stands, uh, you know, the safe harbor is probably going to go away. It may not happen overnight, but it's going to have huge implications on, um, you know, people hosting on uh, on Amazon, on Azure, uh, and, and, and other servers, because even if even if the uh, the uh, primary server may be sitting in in Ireland, uh, you know, a backup typically sits in the U.S. Um, so you've got that in both places. Um, so not sure what's going to happen, but uh, it's uh, it, it, it's certainly going to cause a change in 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 the way hosting uh, is done. And there'll probably be plenty more uh, hosting facilities set up in in Europe. <laughs> yeah, that that was uh, that was the first thing that that crossed my mind when I heard that news is that the uh, European data centres will be uh, rubbing their hands with glee. Um, that's right. That's right. So any any so so moving to um, Office three six five. Um, I, I think we heard um, we did some research around this and um, we we went to a to about 100 organizations worldwide that followed the ITAM review, um, and 50% of those had gone to a Office 365 license model. That's not to say they'd gone to Office 365 necessarily, but they're using that as a license model. So anyone on the call would care to share about uh, what they're hearing in the market in terms of Office 365 and, and any strategies about things to consider when you're moving there? 
Sure, this is Tim Hegedus from Miro Consulting, New York City. Um, the big push for Microsoft has been over the last 18 months or so uh, all about the cloud, and it extends beyond Office 365, obviously. But, but pertinent to Office 365, uh, we have seen where it has matured to a level where it is uh, being commercially accepted. Many of our largest commercial accounts now are now uh, at minimum dipping their toes into the Office 365 pond. Uh, some have gone full-fledged, uh, but all share something of a, a common challenge, if you will. Um, and it, it really starts at the beginning where, where they are. Uh, what is their starting point for that uh, migration into uh, that new model from the on-premise model to the cloud-based model? And so, uh, you know, once they have that straightened out, and that becomes very, very critical uh, as a starting point, uh, but once they have that straightened out, uh, now they have the struggle to define a user population for that model. Uh, once they have done that and, and have begun the execution, now they start to talk about things more in line with security, which probably should have been thought of right from the get-go, uh, but also about performance uh, and even, for some organizations, compatibility with some of their tightly coupled applications. Uh, and all of this, uh, one common theme uh, for all of this is that these companies now feel that uh, Microsoft has uh, entrenched themselves, for the lack of a better word, in their day-to-day -day business operations because that model differs substantially from the on-premise model uh, in that its, its fees are a forever thing rather than being something that can be subject to a, a cost-cutting measure in terms of ongoing uh, support or, or software assurance coverage. So. Uh, knowing that navigation is key to, to these organizations, and uh, I, I think that's still the struggle that many of them are facing, and that's maybe the reason that only 50% of the companies have responded to uh, affirmatively to move into that model. One of the things we heard at our London seminar was that people were uh, struggling with wrapping their heads around CapEx versus OpEx as well, on your point, because it's uh, now an ongoing uh, service cost rather than a capital investment. Exactly. Right. But, but this, this is too in with all our, yeah, absolutely, Martin, but in a lot of places the, uh, the operating expenses are easier to get than the capital expenses, right? So everyone's so pounding down on, on capital expenses that, you know, the more you can put in the operating side, the better. And, you know, that's probably one of the reasons Microsoft went. I mean, one of the things that we're also hearing from, um, uh, people that have moved over, and, and not just Microsoft, but also Adobe Creative Cloud and others, is it's great. You know, they can uh, the, the the cloud provider, the, the vendor will will keep track on the number of users. But how do I actually know that people are are using it? You know, how do I keep track of people that that may have left or or anything else? And I think that's something that you know some of the tool centers can actually help them with. Actually, show them. You know, did people actually use this service? Are they still even in the company? You know, for example. So. And I'm sure Microsoft's very happy to keep uh, keep getting that subscription to the end, uh, but uh, you know, make sure that uh, those people uh, uh, that you have signed up are actually using it. Yeah. Yeah. This is Kevin Suga for Software One. The other challenge, and it's almost getting back to the prior conversation about safe harbor, is one: uh, you have to be very careful about where your tenant is set up. Uh, Microsoft, especially if you do an enterprise agreement, likes to put all your licenses. Even if you're a global company, it's like a single tenant in a single country uh, or area. Uh, so if you wanted to have a multiple tenant scenario, the licensing and the architecture gets very, very, very complicated. The other side of it is Microsoft still has to work more on uh, being able to handle acquisitions and divestitures in a more fluid manner as it relates to the cloud. Um, as once you're disabling someone from Active Directory, for example, they are suddenly shut off uh, from 365 and can't access email and other things. So uh, I think that the M&A area is going to be a, an impact as more and more people are migrating their data and their email to the cloud. Right, right. I hadn't, I hadn't even considered that. Um, 
because they're not they haven't got a fantastic track record in terms of their paperwork around mergers acquisitions and stuff have they this is Mike from Method 180. Um, I actually take this down a little layer further um, or, or, or step back, I guess, a little bit. A lot of the conversations that we're having with our clients now is really focused on what, what actually is Office 365. Because when you ask your client, you know, what are you, what are you doing with Office 365, the answer really is I want to email, uh, migrate my email to the cloud or I want to get rid of storage costs from Exchange. And so what we're actually seeing, and this kind of goes back, Martin, to your comment where you said, you know, 50 percent have bought it doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually using it. Really, what we're seeing in the market is that Office 365 means Exchange Online. It doesn't necessarily mean SharePoint Online. It doesn't mean Skype for Business Online. Really, most enterprises that we're working with are really just thinking about it from an Exchange Online perspective. So that really, you know, pulls it back to the point of. What is Office 365? Is it what Microsoft is selling as their bundles, you know, whether that be E1, E3, E5, um, or is it just that you require Exchange Online? So organizations really need to step back from diving right into this to understand what is their true needs and how they're going to deploy it. Um, we're hearing and, and seeing our client base that onboarding isn't as simple as um, Microsoft necessarily would like you to believe that you know, organizations are only able to potentially onboard 2,000 or so users a week. So when you talk to clients that have tens of thousands of users, these projects could be months long in terms of making a migration of, to Exchange Online. And so you really have to take a look at the cost impact of negotiating, say, an enterprise agreement renewal up front with Office 365 in it versus taking a look at it over time and breaking down the bundles. Um, you know, it is complex. Do we need E3 or is it just Exchange Online that we're looking at or is it just SharePoint Online? What features are we looking at to determine what's the best cost model in order to do this? Uh, not to mention complexities that come from taking a look at do you want to buy the user-based subscription licenses and go full in on the subscription licenses? Do you take a look at the add-on approach? What's the, the benefit or the disadvantage of, of either side of that? And then, you know, lay circular on some of the technical issues that were brought up about um, applications and compatibility with legacy apps that they may have, um, or even take something, uh, you know, such as Office and what's the benefits or disadvantages of purchasing Office through Office 365 and, and being forced to move to the run-to-click models that may have uh, implications in terms of what you're doing. I and mean, we're seeing clients right now that are moving their exchange environments to the cloud bought Office through E3 um, and, and are deployed at Office 2013 and now all of a sudden none of their project or Visio uh, works because there's conflict between uh, the run-click version and the traditional kind of way that you install. So there's lots of challenges that are, are coming up even in organizations that are actually deploying. So, so if, if um, you mentioned um, listening to customer requirements, uh, but do you actually have any flexibility there? Because one of the bits of feedback we've had is uh, in the research is that uh, you know there's these bundles and uh, it might not relate to what you actually need. So how, how if you do specifically need a, a, a bundle specific to your organisation, how how easy it is to to buy a la carte to suit your needs? You absolutely can buy a la carte. Now, you know, I, I you know, the thing that I always say and this resonates with clients is knowing what you don't need it's probably more important than actually knowing what you do need when it comes to Microsoft. Because they are pushing the bundles. It is how they, it is how they sell. It's Office 365 e-bundles. But you can just buy Exchange Online. Uh, they, don't, they don't like that. Um, it, it takes, you know, they see you as not being such a committed client to them. But there are ways to do out of park. Now, the challenge sometimes becomes, depending on what you're doing, if you're looking at, maybe more than one service. Sometimes these bundles and only Microsoft price them make it a little bit more attractive. But some of that becomes a costing exercise in how you look at what you're buying, how best to roll it out, and what's the best way to do it. Do I do it a la carte? Uh, do I use that to drive a negotiation with them? Do I start a la carte and eventually grow over time as I add on more services? So it, it is complex, but there are definitely ways that you can uh, use an a la carte approach to drive costs out and, and put yourself in a better position financially. This is maybe to do with Flexera, and I completely agree with all those points. The other piece that's thrown in there, too, is 
is not just the spend that you have to actually spend and buy and use the product, but it's also then to go back and manage it. What's the cost that's on the managing side of it and how complex is that going to be um, from that standpoint as well? Customers really are, and we're hearing all the same exact thing from our customers as well, and they almost feel like, oh, I, I just have to go and get the bundle. You don't. So there are analysis that need to happen, and I don't think a lot of customers truly are aware of it. Well, and I think it's a lot, it's, I think it's very complicated too because, you know, I, I just finished work with a large global organization where the original kickoff, the CIO said basically, Mike, we're moving to Office 365. Um, I want you to tell me the, the best way to, to do this. And when you go out and you start talking to the organization, you know, to make a long story short, what ended up happening was I had to go back to him and say, you can't move to Office 365 for three years. And he was flabbergasted. But when you started to talk to the organization, now this was a very large company. Um, I think they operate in over 30 countries and have over 100,000 employees. Um, but you know the work that they needed to do on the back end, and then the challenge that they had managing and figuring out how to manage the various different user types was astronomical. And there was no way that they were going to be able to do the things that they needed to do with the Active Directory and Federated Services in any short order. And so, you know, you really need to dig in on what's going on, what you're trying to accomplish, and how, and how you can do that, and whether that's realistic or not. This is Ted. Just to put a punctuation point, perhaps an exclamation mark to all that, both what uh, Mike has said and Mandy has said, uh, Microsoft often will present the, these bundles um, it, rather than the individual packages as a way to reduce management. And in, in that sense, reduce costs associated with management. Uh, so um, there is a, uh, a dilemma that faces many of, of IT's top decision makers in various companies. That's a good point, Tim. I always say to them, if, uh, if you can save a million dollars a year, it doesn't cost you a million dollars to hire somebody to, to manage that complexity. And that's what you need to get across to Microsoft. And one more point on that. This is uh, Peter Baruch with 1A. Um, in terms of the bundle versus the individual product, it's, it's always better from an audit perspective to upgrade rather than downgrade. So if you get the bundle and say you don't need everything in the bundle, want to downgrade, vendor has a much harder time with that. And potentially, I would argue, it may become an audit flag versus you know, trying to go up the scale rather than down the scale. So um, we've been collecting feedback from um, iTime review readers and people that follow the campaign for the licensing and we'll be publishing some research around Microsoft very soon. Uh, just as a bit of a preview, we, we went we just simply asked people what was your biggest uh, issue or pain point in terms of managing Microsoft and the largest one by volume of responses was actually just simply we have issue tracking Microsoft. Uh, no matter whether it's in the desktop, it's the data center, it's cloud, it's hybrid, whatever, we just have difficulty tracking uh, the installation or the usage of Microsoft software. And Microsoft provides, um, you know, SCCM and MAP and um, Intune and various other bits and pieces, but they seem to be very configuration heavy and uh, not very helpful in terms of licensing. So. Um, any feedback in terms of um, just generally tracking the use of, of Microsoft software and, and, and best practices around that? Yeah, this, this is Simon with Bellark. Uh, we actually had the same question from uh, one of your uh, friendly competitors, another large consulting uh, organization worldwide, starts with a G. And uh, they said the same thing. You know, they had clients coming to them saying, hey, we can't track these versions of, uh, of uh, Office 365. And, and they were referring to, they said Microsoft can't track them. And he said, well, you probably mean SCCM. And they said, yeah, 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 because clearly Microsoft knows what they are because they're updating them. <laughs> so, so technically Microsoft can, 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 can manage that. But, you know, I think there are tools out there that, that, uh, that can do a much better job out of the box than, uh, than SCCM. But you know, everyone's got SCCM, and, and the ops guys are happy with it because it deploys software. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's not the best tool to actually be tracking your Microsoft license. This is Mike from Method 180. I would actually add to that, if, you, if you've ever uh, worked on an audit with Microsoft, um, they won't accept data out of SCCM anyways in an audit. So if a client says, I have SCCM, the first thing they say is, that's great, we're not going to use it. 
and they will take it. They will take it and try and validate. You know, if you push them, they'll take and validate it, but they're not going to use it as, as a definitive source and audit. So that probably says a lot right there. And and just as a side note, uh, assuming I'd be we, we we'd be very flattered to be mentioned in the same sentence as Gartner, uh, but I'll take the com- <laughs> I'll, I'll take the I'll take the compliment. Thank you. I, I think I think to some of it, you know, you can look at this from a tools people in a process perspective, uh, but the other side of it as well is just especially when it gets into Microsoft and tracking, um, there's so much complexity in the way that they they license things. Uh, you can take SQL as an example. And if you look at virtualization rules for SQL and the product use rights over time, for 2000, 2005, 2008, ER2, 12, and 14, they all have different rules for virtualization. So depending on how you bought that license, whether it has active software assurance or not, you could have something completely different. So you could have an auditor come in or you could take a look at your environment and you know, say here's here's your license position. You're short 50 licenses of SQL Enterprise, uh, and somebody else can come in and take the exact same look and say, no, actually you're over by 10. And it really has to do with how you assign those licenses. So that the challenge in 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 working with Microsoft is not just tracking and figuring out how do we inventory. It's taking a look at entitlements and what you're entitled to do with those entitlements and how best to assign those licenses to your you know to your real estate. In order to decrease any any potential exposures, right? Yeah, couldn't agree couldn't agree more, Mike. And and and, and definitely, you know, people need to look at the auditors' uh, results with with a, with a jaundiced side because you know we've seen so many cases where they asked for tens of millions in overages when in fact the the client uh, the, the end user may be overlicensed, you know, but they're going to interpret it. In Microsoft's favor, there's no question. So you you really need to dig into those audit reports and uh, both on the discovery and the license entitlement side and and see what makes sense. I was just say the one area I think that, that hasn't been brought up yet that casually we found uh, being very concerning is in the Azure area, where you don't even understand or get reports of consumption until basically as a part of the bill. So you're paying in arrears versus having any kind of throttle or ability to uh, temper your spend going forward. So it, it, to me, I kind of translate it to the, uh, your, your wireless bill, right? You, you kind of forget about how much data you're consuming, but then when you get your bill for several hundred dollars, uh, you, you know, you kind of had a costly mistake. And so I think that one of the big areas uh, where there is no real – uh, push for Microsoft or a lot of SAM tools don't yet have that capabilities is in the Azure space to manage that, that infrastructure as a service utilization charge. Yeah, one of the other points I was going to add too is, you know, customers still don't seem to be educated enough on exactly what they can install, where they can install it, where it makes the most sense. Um, you know, if SQL, Windows, the same, you know, kind of some of the same issues pop up with that. If you have unlimited, why are you um, putting more VMs on, you know, in smaller hosts instead of just kind of combining some of those? Um, and they still, customers still have to get away from, that, well, we have an enterprise agreement, and we can install whatever we want and wherever we want. So I think education right. is another big thing there. And, you know, Microsoft does change a lot of the terms and conditions. And by changing um, those those specifics, you either need to have a partner or you need to have a Microsoft expert um, on staff with you. And that's really coming to to light with a lot of customers, um, especially in the past, I'd say, three to five years, just because they're, this is a big money spend. This is something that they're really spending a lot of money on, and if you're out of compliance, that bill goes up even more. But what if he historically... Uh, Mandy, so you, you would say, uh, oh, uh, uh, never mind the complexity because I've got an enterprise agreement. I've got my comfort blanket and my shield of steel, and I, I'll just, I'll buy an enterprise agreement because all of that complexity will go away. But I think nowadays uh, organisations are a lot shrewder in terms of their spend. Well, I'd like to think so anyway. Would you agree? The the guys on the call, guys and gals on the call, would you agree? Are people uh, more sharper to their spend these days? It's Mike here from Method 180. What I would say there, Martin, is I've seen a shift. I think in the past, Microsoft in an IT budget was considered to be a rounding error. If you go back five, you know, five or more years ago, 
a lot of organizations considered their Microsoft spend to be a rounding error compared to what they were spending with, you know, SAP and IBM. And that's probably a statement that is in the large enterprise space more than maybe in some of the smaller uh, mid-market type accounts. But um, what they're seeing is as Microsoft has expanded their footprint, expanded their, their product set, uh, that their spend in Microsoft has grown. And, you know, typically uh, four, five, six years ago, an EA renewal was, okay, we're going to renew, we know we're going to renew it, let's just go out and try and get a little bit of a deal from them and then we're going to sign it. Um, but as it's become a bigger portion of their, their overall spend on software, they're definitely focusing on it. Um, they're also focusing on the fact that, you know, they've, they've let millions of dollars of software sit on the shelf. Um, you know, a lot of organizations only moved on Windows 7 in 2010 due to end of, end of life and support. Um, and they would have been happy to sit on XP in 2003, but they were paying for licenses for Windows 7 and you know, 2010 or 13 or 16 or, or what you know, whatever um, for years, costing them millions of dollars in un unconsumed software. Um, so we are definitely seeing a focus on it out there in the market. Kevin, if I could perhaps come to you, um, we, Microsoft have made a number of changes to their agreements um, and programs over the summer. Um, have, have you seen what, what's your um, view of the uh, the feedback on the market there? Yeah, sure. So I think it uh, to me, Microsoft would probably call it a price correction instead of a price increase. And I think that if you kind of track the costs of Microsoft's Office 365 in particular uh, since its original uh, release somewhere around 2009, the actual pricing of 365 has gone down. Uh, and obviously it was going down for two reasons. One, the theory was as you have more users in the multi-tenant space, the cost for support of those, those customers goes down and they're passing that on. But to me, the reality was they were trying to find the right price point to get the critical mass of adoption. Uh, I think it was said before, customers are now finally commercially ready uh, to migrate at least the email and, and uh, link or now Skype for business for the most part to the cloud and Microsoft has, has definitely uh, felt the, the pulse on that. And so what they're doing now is they're increasing the costs associated with those cloud services. So I think that to a degree you're, you're getting kind of the, the uh, J curve. And so now you're seeing the upswing of the J curve. And they're also trying to monetize mobility. So uh, while they, they've kind of have migrated away from licensing their software per device as much as they can, and moving it to the per user model, uh, they're now in essence uh, assuming or, or implying that uh, because users now have multiple devices, therefore there's a price increase that should go associated with the multiple device access. Um, so I think that it's just a, a J curve of, of the pricing model where Microsoft now feels much more confident in their market share and the growth of, and acceptance of their cloud and, and mobile strategy. Isn't uh, the license agreements and, and product use rights supposed to be simpler and shorter number of pages? And is, is that, is that, uh, would you agree with that? Well, I, I think it depends. I think that uh, for them, they'll say that the documents have gotten shorter, but now there's more documents. Uh, so, so yes, each document is now only four pages, but if you have to sign six documents in order to get uh, your EA or, or your MPSAs uh, executed, you're still back to a 24, 30-page document. Um, on the other side, they, they try to simplify access or understanding of their license, uh, product license terms by consolidating what used to be product use rights and a product list into a single uh, document called product terms. But to me, it's, it's, it's a, kind of a, just a big stapler. Uh, on two documents. Uh, it, I don't think that uh, it can be streamlined. And I think, quite frankly, a lot of the complexity of how people are using the software and their desires to, to embrace that, com that, that flexibility and monetize that flexibility um, doesn't allow it to be that, that easy and, and requires that level of complexity. Um, so if you just look at you know, how now uh, Microsoft Office 365 can be licensed, not only just in terms of the number of plans available, but the various licensing programs that's available under that in itself just creates the complexity requiring that much documentation. Right. So I, I don't actually think it's it's gotten 
and simpler. Just in terms of monetizing mobility, um, th this was this was key in our in research as well. Um, a lot of organisations were trying to do mobile or having lots of pressure to do mobile and get Microsoft on, on mobile. And the feedback we had was that if you went the Office 365 route, Microsoft were making it very easy. They took a lot, you know, it was it took away a lot of that pain. And if you weren't using Office 365, then it was very difficult to manage. Um, would you agree with that? Is, is that is that what you're seeing in the market as well? Well, that's definitely the direction. I called it the chain of pain. So the, the least flexible and, and least uh, rights-oriented or least value is to buy a license only. And so one of the things I think that's interesting that Microsoft does now for several years is they take rights that would normally have been a part of the product license and they now moved it into something that's tied to either software assurance or an Office 365 subscription, like they've done that with Office, where Office Mobile is only available under a 365 subscription. So it's it's definitely, I think, their marketing strategy is to say that to the extent that you want to get all this flexibility uh, with mobility, with cloud, and, and in essence, uh, reduce the, the license compliance uh, complexity, you're going to have to go into a 365 uh, or at a, you know, where there's cloud offers available or uh, a software assurance uh, to do that. So they've done similar things with SQL, for example, where passive failover and license ability now require software assurance where in the past it would have just been a part of the product license. So I, I definitely uh, see Microsoft continuing that path, where a lot of flexible benefits for cloud and mobility that uh, customers would like to see will only be available as a part of a 365 or SA subscription. The next piece of feedback we had in terms of the campaign for licensing was that um, uh, licensing is at times unnecessarily complex and sometimes Microsoft staff or Microsoft partners don't know the answers themselves in terms of queries that customers are raising. I, I, and, and Microsoft's counter to this is that they need to be flexible. They want to be as flexible as possible to address different customer needs, but uh, that, you know, might, perhaps that's gone a bit too far and um, licensing is far too complex. Um, so what, what are your views in terms of managing that complexity and, uh, and uh, navigating that all, all of that choice. So, so this is Mike uh, from Mac at 180 here. Um, I think there's, there's a couple of, couple of points that I would make here. Um, the, the first is, it, is it complex? Yes, it is. And, and the complexity just becomes because of the number of options that you have. Um, I mean, when you take a look at purchasing Office, I think you could probably just, if, just to purchase Office alone, there's probably 12 to 15 different part numbers, so to speak, that you could, could purchase it under. Um, but the complexity um, that they have, it, the, the real challenge to getting around it and to making it simple for yourself is to actually go internally first and look at what it is that we actually require. So in other words, don't look at where you've come from, how you've been licensing for the last six, nine, 12 years, you've been on these agreements for you know three and four cycles now, but to really take a look at where we're at today and where we're going and then try and understand those and then figure out what licenses make the most sense for us to purchase and then to go and negotiate with Microsoft. Because the, the challenge, and, and when, they, when you hear things like Microsoft sales reps don't understand licensing and the partners don't understand licensing, the challenge is that these people are trying to sell or the sales reps are trying to sell a program, an enterprise agreement. They're trying to sell a marketing product, Office 365, they don't understand product use rights or product terms and the language in the contract on what you can and can't do and you know because they're trying to sell you licenses and so you really need to take a look at what it is that you're trying to accomplish where you're going figure out what licenses make the most sense for you to buy and then figure out how to uh, you know assemble that up into a program versus just negotiating an enterprise agreement with Microsoft and Office 365 which is what they want um, so some of that complexity is by design. Some of it is to give you that flexibility, which you can actually leverage um, to your advantage. You just need to do the homework. Again, I think I said it earlier, knowing what you don't need is more important than knowing what you do need in these scenarios. I would just add to that, that uh, 
the investment in software and support, software assurance, you know, from Microsoft, from Oracle, from Adobe, from any perspective whatsoever, can be massive and be ha perhaps be so massive uh, that it rivals the cost uh, even of human resources expenses within the company. Perhaps. Perhaps that's a stretch. But what is not a stretch is that companies in, in Miro's experience pay very, very close attention to the capital dollars, the expense dollars, the operating expense dollars uh, associated with things like human resources and uh, facilities ma management, electricity, uh, all these sorts of uh, expenses. Yet they really don't keep a, a, a very good handle on their software expenses. And maybe that's, maybe that's a result of the complexity. Uh, perhaps that is something akin to throwing their hands up um, in utter defeat because understanding the licenses can be the licensing scheme, understanding what you need, how it interacts with your and how it melds to your environment are key, as Mike has indicated. Well, and I, I would kind of add to that a little bit that part of the, the challenge is that this is a, a unique skill set in order to really, really look at these things. And, and what I mean by that is you know, these uh, licenses and the purchasing of licenses could sit within purchasing. Um, it could sit within IT, maybe, you know, a purchaser within the IT, in, within the IT department. But it really is a mix of IT, legal, and finance. Um, because you have to look at the, the terms of how you can use it. You have to look at the cost implications. And you have to look at the technology. And being able to speak all three of those languages is a unique skill set. Um, that a lot of organizations don't have. So if you leave a, a purchase of Microsoft licensing, say within purchasing, uh, maybe that person doesn't have the expertise to look at legal T's and C's or product terms and understand exactly how um, or, or what your rights are. Whereas, you know, if that's within IT, IT is happy to just go out and deploy. And I think somebody earlier was talking about, you know, we have an EA, we just deploy this stuff. Um, you know, they're happy to just go and deploy and use the technology. That's what their role is. But, you know, they don't understand the financial impact or, or again, the legal impact. Or, you know, if it's left within legal, legal doesn't understand technology and how deployments work and what virtualization is and all these, these you know, technical initiatives. So it is a very unique skill set that's required to look at it from all three of those angles. And, uh, or, and or a team approach to, to make sure that you, you fully understand it. Yeah, uh, what, what I'd just like to add, Mike, is, uh, you know, it does take those unique skill sets that you pointed out between finance, legal, and, and IT, and, and it's, it's almost as if the, the, the top guys, whether it's the CFO or the CIO, uh, doesn't really, they're doing it to try to stay legal. You know, they're trying to be, uh, you know, within, within the uh, legal boundaries. I don't think many of these guys at, at a, at a uh, CIO level or CFO level may not yet understand the enormous amounts of money that are involved that they could potentially be saving. I mean, we're, we're starting to see tens of millions of dollars uh, in you know, large organizations, but tens of millions of dollars per year that, that could be that, that are being saved actually by, by people that are taking a hard look at it and, and, and trying to combine those three skills. And uh, maybe that's just not that common yet. You know, maybe people don't realize, hey, there, there's a there's a ton of money in, involved here that uh, that can be avoided. I absolutely agree with that. So, is there anything um, sure. is there anything that Microsoft as an organization or, or the industry as a whole could be doing to raise awareness? Um, I mean, I think we are. If you look at uh, the SAM industry holistically, we are in its infancy. I think. And people are just cottoning on to this about the the value of managing things properly. Um, is there anything that Microsoft could be doing to raise awareness around that? Do you think um, to to help? I mean, they're, they're not going to actively encourage software uh, customers to spend less, but it would be professional and and um, very good of them to raise the awareness of the risk and and the the value of managing software. Uh, is there anything they could be doing? Well, I think I do think they try to do that, and you know if. if if you look at what they're trying to do with SAM and the number of resources that they've put into into SAM, I think that maybe the approach that they're taking could be tweaked. Um, they look at it as a revenue generator, right? Um, 
basically believe that for every dollar they spend, they're going to get a, a multiplier on that dollar. And so, you know, are those uh, people that are conducting SAMs, are they quoted? I don't, I don't know if they are or not internally at Microsoft. Um, it sort of seems like they are. And I think they miss the boat on the, the opportunity when they do something that's supposed to be friendly. Um, you know, I tell people, if you're getting SAMs, it's just an audit. It's, a, it's an audit in disguise. The only difference is, is what the penalties are. You know, do you have to pay, you know, list plus 20% or do you just get to buy it off your contract? Um, you know, so I, I think that there's an opportunity for them to shift um, their behavior there, whether they want to or not would be a completely different question because if they see it as a, a, a massive revenue generator, they're, you know, they're unlikely to want to shift there. But I, I think they fall down and, and miss the boat in what they're doing in those initiatives. This is uh, Peter from Money. I think one of the things that uh, vendors are increasingly doing, and particularly Microsoft, and you know, while this is going to take some time to get some serious traction, is supporting ISO standards. Uh, Microsoft, particularly in the software identification or SWID, where everything that they're publishing now and have published since Windows 8 now comes with a software identifier, so tools providers that have the ability to report on that are getting more accurate information rather than relying on their own uh, catalogs. And then the uh, flip side of that, on the entitlement side, there is a coming standard on the entitlement schema, which will essentially do the same thing, and when a publisher sells you a license for a particular product or suite of products, it will actually have a schema that goes along with that license to go to that uh, inventory tool and be able to more accurately report what it is you have. So again, it will take some time uh, for vendors to go there, but Microsoft's uh, very much aggressive in uh, pursuing those standards and, and seeing those through. So, Peter, the SWIT tags are a great idea, Peter. Uh, we're, we're been part of that and involved in that in the early days when it came out of the U.S. But uh, you know, we, we don't see, you know, in Microsoft products, we, we don't see um, that much useful information there yet. Um, but hopefully others too. I mean, uh, IBM is, is starting to use it in their new products, and and, and that's even a bigger boom. But uh, that's another subject. But yeah, it's, it it could be great in the future, but uh, it's got us still a long way to go. It, it does, but I think it's on the right track. And you know, if there's an interim, a better interim solution, I think everybody would be all ears. But uh, you know, I, I say that uh, if the ISO standards and the SWIDs and entitlement schemas actually take off. Um, you'll be getting rapidly closer to push-button compliance, being able to have an accurate picture as to what you actually have installed and used. So, so Peter, can I just dig into that a bit? So, um, and th this is for people that are perhaps new to standards and new to software tags. So, since Windows 8, there's been an ISO tag in Microsoft Software, so that if you have the right tools or, or know where to look, then you can find these tags and you can correctly identify what's installed across your network using the tags. Is that is that good interpretation of that? Correct. For, correct for for that for that software that's been tagged. And you know, um, I was at an ISO meeting uh, last week, and uh, the guy from who heads up Microsoft Standards was there, and he said, uh, you know, we've been doing this since Windows 8, and there was a side comment that somebody said, well, nobody's used Windows 8, so what's your real commitment here? But the <laughs> fact is, it's that Microsoft is committed to it. Uh, they are doing it for all products moving forward. As the other person said, IBM is doing it, and that may actually be better. And the strategy has been with the working group of the ITAM committee, WD21, is to use the vendors that are adopting it and try to get them to convince other vendors to do the same thing. And you do have Adobe who's supporting it. You've got Symantec who's supporting it. Uh, SAP's been at the table, uh, although they are not tagging um, as of today. But um, you know, so but it, but I think it is a growing momentum, and I think that the vendors who are doing it also see that it's not something that dramatically increases the cost, but does increase uh, customer satisfaction. Right. So, so that's the dash two, the the identification tag of what's installed, and then dash three um, is the entitlement tag. So that's a that's an ISO tag declaring what you've actually purchased and how that's licensed. 
how does that actually work in practice? Because for Dash 2, you have a piece of code installed as part of your installation. How does Dash 3 actually work? So, so Dash 3 is essentially works the same, and I'm being overly simplistic, and, and the editor would do a far better job explaining what it is. But essentially what would happen with Dash 3, which is the entitlement schema, is if you acquired a license from Microsoft, for example, and it had one, two, or more different products in there in different quantities, Microsoft would also make available to you with that paperwork, um, you know, a schema or a file, XML file, that will actually have that information in there to allow that information to be read by an inventory tool with an entitlement component and then be able to uh, re accurately report what it is you've actually acquired uh, as directed by the vendor. So if, if Microsoft calls it X, you, you're going to know you have X, so you're not going to have those challenges about naming conventions uh, between the products and when they change over time, you're getting that authoritative information directly from the vendor. And, and the way I, that I see that unfolding, and this is a bit out there and a bit future, but uh, potentially it's almost like digital stock trading in that things could actually get more complex in terms of licensing and speed up because theoretically uh, 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 it could be completely automated using those tags. Is that, is that a pipe dream? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a pipe dream. I mean, we we are. You know, when as I talk about Dash Three or the entitlement scheme, it's not even published. It, it's expected to be published later on this year, um, or very very early next. But it has been tested um, by a number of vendors, including Microsoft and IBM, um, and it's been tested using, um, you know, real product and putting it out there in the field. Um, there are actually very few tools that can actually read that information now, but I think that that will happen once that publish, uh, once that standard is published, so that you know the the, the tools providers, one e being one of them, Bellark being another, would be able to you know tweak their products to be able to read those schemas to be able to consume that information and then report it back out to their customers. Right. Right. And so there's a couple of things there. One is it's going to take time to get there. And secondly, as mentioned on the call earlier, it's not going to cover Azure and AWS and uh, potentially mobile. So there's 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 uh, there's some hurdles there to look at, isn't there? There, there there's, there's definitely going to be hurdles and there's going to certainly be adoption hurdles. But again, it's, it's, it's you know, a, 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 a so far industry supported marginal, but, you know, growing support for that standard and trying to make licensing easier uh, for everybody. And as we all know, you know, those of us who've been doing this for a long time, nothing happens overnight. Right, right. But if I could speak to that, I think one of the things getting back to standards I'd like to see is API standards for these cloud services companies. Whether it's like Microsoft with Azure and Office 365, or Salesforce, or uh, you know Concur, SAP, what have you, so that uh, tool companies can do a better job of interfacing with those APIs and pulling cloud usage, so you can get uh, visibility to not only your on-premise usage but your cloud usage all in a single pane, and really get all your IT uh, spend and management uh, in, a, in a single console. And I think that. You know, there's various companies out there that can do various things to try to manage the cloud usage, but without the publishers getting back to what Microsoft can do better, I think it's the APIs and making those APIs available that uh, in a standard formatting uh, on the cloud side as well that would really improve um, our ability to, to manage it going forward. Yeah, there, there's roughly 20,000 published standards by ISO, uh, and, and there may frankly be a standard for the API. I, I don't know if there is or is not, uh, but certainly that's where it would belong. I don't know if that would belong in WG21 that's responsible for the ITAM standards. There is a... There's, there's not a current API, but we're, we're picking up usage on Office 365 and Adobe Creative Cloud today. But we have to go into the, you know. You have to go API. into it, right? It's not a standard API for it's it. It's not a standard. No, 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 right. not at all. There is a, um, I don't know if it's a, you'd call it a standard, but it's a, um, yeah, I guess it is a standard. They, it's called SAML, S-A-M-L, and that's for mm -hmm. single sign-on. So you could go into salesforce.com and talk to Salesforce about who's, uh, 
uh, you know, if if somebody had dropped out of Active Directory, for example, then you could talk to to Salesforce.com and remove that user. Um, so that's one one way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Need some some open it. Right, but if you look at Azure consumption, AWS consumption, if you've made reservation for a user, but that user is not actually yet activated or or used the service, you'd have no visibility to that. Right. So just yeah, to... so we're finding you can actually get the usage data off of off of the client if there's a client installed. You can actually yeah, get the client installed. Data. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, there there is so far, so <laughs> so far so good. But uh, yeah, we, we doubt that the uh, the ops guys are going to give us uh, you know admin login permit permissions to their cloud uh, software. Somebody mentioned about uh, CCSP partners or CC CC. Yes, yeah, that was, that was myself. CSP. Uh, so one thing is I think that uh, people, especially in the lower market, uh, I'd say sort of sub 500 employees. Uh, Microsoft is now trying to minimize or, or outsource, if you will, a lot of the uh, Tier 1 and Tier 2 support for Office 365. So they've created a, yet another licensing vehicle for Office 365 called CSP, Cloud Service Provider. So in that case, the uh, provider that's giving the technical support uh, and migration services for the Office 365 or Azure will bundle their services costs actually into the license fee. And it's a monthly license fee. So now when you start getting into uh, understanding your spend with Microsoft and trying to navigate all of your cloud options, this vehicle will be more and more attractive because it's obviously uh, in many ways more lucrative uh, for the channel uh, to be driving CSP because they get to include and wrap their services into it in a very cost-effective way. Um, so I think it's just something else to be just mindful of. Uh, as Microsoft, I think, will be pushing that very heavily over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So that's that's pu that's purely a service play, though, is it? You're not actually buying licenses? Well, you're buying a license with it. So right. let's say, for example, if you have an E3, you will have, uh, under the CSP, you can buy your E3, but you're buying it as a part of that E3 license the migration services and technical support services of the provider you're buying that from. Right. So it's a, it's a bundled price queue, if you will. So thank you to the, our guests on today's podcast. We've been listening to Tim Hegedis from Miro Consulting, Mike Austin from Method 180, Sumin Chen from Bellark, Peter Baruch from 1E, Kevin Suckow from Software One and Mandy Sue Blue from Flexera Software. Uh, if you're on the east coast of the US, please come and join us at a free Microsoft licensing seminar on Wednesday, the 21st of October. That's being held at Baruch College in New York, and we'll dig into some of this Microsoft licensing detail. And you get the opportunity to obviously network with your peers around this stuff. Uh, and in terms of the research, stay tuned to the ITAM review. We'll let you know when that research is published around Microsoft licensing uh, from the campaign for clear licensing. And hopefully we can get a constructive response from Microsoft um, and start a positive dialogue uh, from Microsoft directly in terms of um, and, um, improving some of this stuff. In the meantime, thank you for listening.